It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. What are phobias? Why do we have them? And how do you overcome a phobia? We'll answer all of these questions and more on this edition of Getting Schooled. I'm Abby Hornacek. What keeps you up at night? Is it spiders? Is it heights? Tight spaces? For me, you're going to think I'm a little odd for this, but it's the thought of being next to a giant ship. If I am swimming next to an aircraft carrier, that is what keeps me up at night. I don't know why. It really freaks me out. For you, maybe it's more than just a fear. It might bring along some pretty intense feelings and even interrupt your everyday life. In that case, you may have a phobia. So how do phobias different from basic fears? What are the signs and symptoms that someone might have a phobia? And which phobias are most common? Joining me now is professor and chair in the Department of Psychology at Toronto Metropolitan University, Dr. Martin Antony. Dr. Antony, how's it going? Thanks for joining me. I'm doing well, thank you. Well, thanks for coming on. I was saying earlier, I'm just so intrigued by this because the human brain is so fascinating and I want to know all about phobias. So let's just start with what exactly is a phobia and how does that differ from what a fear is? Yeah, so I would think of uh, fear as just basically a, a human emotion. Um, so when we talk about fear, we're talking about um, uh, an emotion that we experience when we are confronted with something that we perceive as some sort of immediate threat. So fear activates our fight or flight reaction where we, our body is prepared to either escape from the situation very quickly or um, to meet that threat with a, an aggressive uh, sort of response. So if a bear was chasing us, the emotion we would experience is fear. Um, and lots of people have, you know, we all, most of us anyway, have fears of situations that are objectively threatening. Um, but we can also have that fear reaction in situations that realistically are not threatening or dangerous. Um, a phobia is just a fear that is excessive. So it's out of proportion to the actual danger. But it's also at a level where it's interfering with people's lives uh, or it's bothering them in some way. So if you have a, a terrible fear of public speaking, but it never comes up in your life, it's not a problem, you don't really care, uh, it doesn't interfere with your life, we wouldn't call that a phobia. That would just be a fear of public speaking. Um, but if you were a politician or a teacher and you couldn't get in front of a group and speak, uh, then you might have a problem and we might call that a phobia. Oh, interesting. Okay, so let's say um, let's say you have a fear of heights and you go up in elevators, you're fine with it. You have a fear of heights, but then you maybe are an electrician and you have to climb up and, and replace a bulb at the top of a building. Then is that point, uh, it's a phobia? Um, yeah, so it could be as long as all the diagnostic criteria are met. Um, I saw somebody who had a fear of heights his whole life and it just never caused problems for him until he got married later in life and his partner wanted to go skiing with him all the time and he had said he would do this when they got married and he couldn't because of his fear of heights so all of a sudden this fear that 
really wasn't a problem for him became a problem and he sought treatment for it. So at that point, it was considered a phobia. Interesting. Okay, so what sort of things then can cause a phobia? Are they trauma-based? Are they genetic? Uh, All of the above. So there's many, many different factors that uh, can contribute to phobia. So trauma is certainly one of them. If you're bitten by a dog or you get into a car accident, that might trigger a a fear of driving uh, or a fear of dogs. Um, But we can also learn to fear things through observation. So if I grow up with parents who are very afraid of driving, and I see that, you know, day after day and year after year, um, by the time I turn 16 and get my license, I might be afraid of driving just by watching them be afraid. Um, People can also develop fears through information, things that they read, things that they see in the media, things that people tell them. Um, We also know that genetics plays a role. So, you know, we can have two people who get into a car accident one of them develops a phobia of driving and the other one doesn't, uh, even though they've had the exact same experience. Mm. Um, and that may be partly genetically based. So it could be that uh, yeah, one person's genes predispose them to develop that fear. Uh, stress at the time of the event could affect how that event impacts on the person. Someone who's under a lot of stress and then they experience a car accident may experience that accident in a more traumatic way. And we even know that we are... Uh, predisposed to learn to fear some things more easily than others. So it's much more easy to learn to fear snakes, for example, than it is to fear electrical sockets, you know, even though they're both potentially dangerous. Um, the thinking is that just through evolution, we, we've developed uh, this, this uh, tendency to learn to associate certain things with danger that might have been dangerous to our our ancestors prehistorically. So those are just some examples. There's even other things, uh, more things that potentially can impact. That is so fascinating to me because I I, I recently I do a show about national parks and we were we were canoeing down this river and we saw about nine different snakes, one of them being a water moccasin, which if that bites you, it kills you. And I was thinking about that. And and why are we just automatically afraid of snakes? They're far enough away. I knew nothing was going to happen, but you kind of get the heebie-jeebies. And it, and it is true. If you'd go back over evolution and our ancestors had to survive and they had to maybe go through these areas where there are a lot of snakes. And that is a real fear that they had because of something that could happen. And then later on in life, electrical sockets have not always been around. So maybe that's something we haven't been learned to fear yet. Exactly. Yeah. So we call those... Um fears prepared fears uh, because we are prepared or predisposed to learn to fear some things more easily than others uh, like snakes for example and heights and things like that Mm -hmm. so to go back to your car crash example you have two different people experiencing different things if one of those people has an immense fear of driving after a car accident but still drives is that a phobia or do they have to never drive again because they're so scared for it to be a phobia? Um, that's a great question. So the way it's worded in the diagnostic criteria is the person either needs to avoid the situation or they need to endure it with uh, intense distress. So mm-hmm. they could still do it and be intensely afraid while they're doing it um, and still be considered to have a phobia as long as it bothers them that they have the fear and it's interfering with their life and in some way. Um, yeah. So for some people, they, they do keep doing it. 
I would say most people that I've worked with with, with extreme fears avoid the situation. Um, in fact, we know that we'll I assume we'll talk about treatment later, but one of the ways of overcoming a fear is doing the thing over and over again. So for a lot of people who do force themselves to do the thing, it gets easier over time. Mm. Okay. I have to bring up a personal example because I'm so curious. Selfishly, I'm curious about this. I am, I love heights. I love skydiving, bungee jumping, all the things that people would probably be afraid of. I think I have, you know, I'm, I'm like, I, I want to do those things. Right. But I have this really weird fear and I don't know if it's a fear or phobia. So that's why I'm asking this question where if I'm Let's say I'm jet skiing and I see a big ship next to me. I get really, really freaked out to the point where I want to pass out. And even the other day I was walking uptown and, you know, the Intrepid is there and it's this giant aircraft carrier. And I'm, I was on the sidewalk, but I just saw this massive ship above me and I, I didn't change directions, but I really was having a hard time just walking past it. Is that a phobia or is that a fear? Especially given the fact that I'm not afraid of it, like, you know, running me over or me sinking with the ship, there's no logical explanation to why I'm afraid. Yeah, I would say it's it's a fear. You're afraid of the, the thing and the fear is out of proportion to the danger. But um, it's probably not a phobia because it's probably not something that's coming up in your life on a regular basis or that it's really important that you do. It's not affecting your work. It's not affecting your relationships. Um, uh, I guess if it, you know, it, it's, if, if it was something that was preventing you from doing things that you wanted to do on a regular basis, so it was really interfering with your life, um, then it could be. That's probably the question I would I would ask you. But it, it sounds like it's probably just something you live with, and it's not a. It doesn't have a big impact on your life. Is that fair? That that is fair. But uh, yeah, I, I was yeah. curious because. Look, I think you just you corrected something that I've been thinking this whole time and maybe some of the listeners think this as well, but some I always believed that phobias were an irrational fear. So you're telling me it's just it doesn't necessarily have to be irrational. Well, they're usually phobias are usually irrational or excessive. So they're out of proportion to the situation or or they have no basis in reality, but but we all have fears that are excessive or or irrational. That's not enough. Um so although phobias are typically excessive or irrational fears, most irrational and excessive fears are not phobias, if that makes sense, because that they does. don't interfere with your life. You know, if you're afraid of snakes and again, you just don't see them much, it doesn't matter how irrational the fear is. If you don't see them, it doesn't come up. You don't care. We wouldn't consider that a phobia, but if you couldn't leave your house or you weren't sleeping at night because you were having nightmares about snakes and, um, you know, then, then potentially it would be a phobia because it would be impacting on your day-to-day -day life. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it, so it just, you have to have that added element of it affecting your everyday life. That's yes. kind of the kick. Okay, I see. Yeah, so one, one way I describe it is that if it's not a problem, then it's not a problem, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. It's not a problem, it's not a problem. That's easier said than done, I guess, but yes. All right, we've got to step aside for a quick recess, but we'll be back right after this. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. I, I want to know, too, the, the human brain is so complex. How does a phobia affect the human brain? What does that brain activity look like? 
Yeah. So the the when we when fear is activated, um, there are certain areas of the brain that are activated. So one example is the amygdala is, is sort of a center of the in the brain that's involved in emotions like fear. Um, our somatic nervous system gets activated, um, and in particular, uh, a neurotransmitter, which is neurotransmitters are just chemicals that transmit information from one brain cell to the next. And the one that's involved in fear is called norepinephrine. Um, and that basically triggers that fight or flight response where your heart is causes your, your heart to race and you, you might start breathing more. You might actually feel like you're not getting enough air. Uh, you might experience some sweating, some shaking. Um, and again, all of those symptoms are designed to get you out of the situation as quickly as possible or to meet that threat head on with a, again, with a fight. Some people will, will you know, if a, if a dog is attacking your child, you might respond more with an aggressive re response toward the dog rather than running away. And I'd also just add, we, we talk about the fight or flight response, but there's also a freezing response that sometimes uh, when people are experiencing a trauma, they, they experience more of a freezing response, uh, kind of like a, we, we often think about a deer caught in the headlights, you know, where the deer is just sort of, standing there and and a lot of people uh or some people anyway during a trauma will will report that they just felt like they couldn't move they couldn't fight back they couldn't run away um why do some people so, have yeah, that reaction yeah i'm not sure i am i am not sure where it comes from so I, i'm not sure from a um like i'm thinking from an evolutionary perspective where would that come from um mm. it might come from i'm just making this up i really have no idea but i'm thinking sometimes uh animals will play dead you know when when there's a predator around ah. um, uh with the thinking that you know that that may get the predator less interested i'm not sure if it comes with that um i'm not sure if it comes from more just uh the desire to to uh assess the situation um and it's not clear whether it you should you know how to have what the best way to handle it is so you just feel frozen in the situation i'm not sure i'm just speculating right now mm -hmm. but uh that's a great that's a great question well those are good good uh guesses <laughs> I, I wonder i mean it has to you never you never know how someone reacts to something and and maybe it yeah that the human the, the brain does different things and and i wonder if that response changes from situation to situation when it comes to like the same person, maybe the same person might react differently in different situations is what I'm trying to say. So if, when it comes to phobias, there are obviously so many different things people can be afraid of. Are, are phobias categorized in any ways? What, what are the different types of phobias? Yeah. So one type of diagnosis for phobias is called specific phobia. And this is a phobia of specific objects and situations. And there are four main types there. One of them is animal type, and that includes animals and insects. So things like dogs, cats, mice, birds, uh, um, both sorts of things, spiders, snakes. Um, a second is, uh, a second type is natural environment types. And that is fears of heights, fears of water, fears of storms, uh, those sorts of things. Um, blood injury and injection type is a third type. So that'd be mm -hmm. a fear of the sight of blood, getting needles. That's the only one that's actually associated with fainting. So about two thirds of people with a fear of blood phobias report a history of fainting in the situation. And about half of people with needle phobias report a history of fainting. Mm -hmm. And uh, the fourth type is a fear of um, 
it's called situational type, but that's things like fears of enclosed places, flying, driving, uh, those sorts of things. And then there's also an other type. There's actually five types. That other type would be fears of uh, vomiting, fears of choking, fears of um, clowns. Uh, some children are afraid of Santa Claus. You know, all of those would fit <gasps> oh, into that other type. That's so sad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that, that's specific phobia, but then there's also other types of phobic disorders. Agoraphobia is one where people are afraid of situations where they might have a panic attack and not be able to escape easily. And they end up fearing a whole range of situations, um, uh, standing in long lines. They're, they're often afraid of flying and driving because you wouldn't want to have a panic attack on an airplane and not be able to get out easily. Um, they're not afraid of crashing. They're afraid of panicking. Uh, they're also, yeah, they can be afraid of just even leaving the house in some cases. So there's also a problem called social anxiety disorder, where people have a phobic response to social situations, things like meeting new people, dating, uh, public speaking, um, interviews, those sorts of things. So people can have that kind of phobic reaction in a number of different situations. And those are some of the ways that we, we, classify some of those reactions. Right. So then how do you separate a clinical phobia from just being afraid of something? It does it go back to what you're saying if it affects your everyday life or how do you diagnose someone? Yeah. So that's really the the question we 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 ask people questions like um first of all is it excessive? Do you think you're more afraid of this than you should be? Are you more afraid than other people are? Are you more afraid than what the situation warrants? And then we ask questions about distress. Does it bother you that you have this fear? Is it something that you wish you could get over? Or is it something you just live with and it's not a big deal? We ask questions about impairment. Is this something that affects your work? Does it affect your social life? Does it affect your relationships? Does it affect your hobbies? How often does it come up in your life? All of those are to get a sense of impairment. Um, but ultimately, it's, it's, a, it's a subjective judgment call. So there are people where it's really clear. There are people... You know, where it's really clear they have a phobia. There's people where it's really clear that it doesn't meet that that threshold. Um, but there's also people where it's kind of on the fence and it's not as obvious and it's, it, it is more of a judgment call in those cases. Mm-hmm. So then what happens next once you say, all right, you sound like someone who has claustrophobia, how do you then treat that? So depending on the type of fear, um, there, there are different treatment strategies. So um, one strategy that's used across fears is something called uh, exposure therapy. So, you know, probably everybody listening to this has had some fear in the past that they don't have anymore. You know, maybe they were afraid of the dark as a small child, or maybe they were really nervous their first day at work at a, at a new job and they got used to it over time. Um, we all have the ability to get used to things that we're afraid of by just doing them over and over again. And that's something that occurs across people, across cultures, even across species. Um, you know, my dog was afraid of going for walks and we just took her out for walks and walked a little bit farther each day. And over time, over a couple of weeks, she got to the point where she could walk anywhere in the neighborhood. So exposure is probably the most powerful strategy we have for overcoming fear. And we do it in a, in a way that's gradual. The, the client is in charge. We don't force the person to do anything. We don't trick them into doing things. Um, and over time it gets easier. So that's one important strategy. And then for some problems, especially for agoraphobia and uh, social anxiety disorder, 
We can also use cognitive strategies. And these are strategies that involve encouraging people to identify and challenge the beliefs that contribute to their fears. So if I'm convinced that other people aren't gonna like my presentation and that if they don't like it, it'll be a disaster, we encourage people to ask questions. Like, first of all, how do you know people aren't gonna like your presentation? Is it possible that some people will like it? Um, and what if some people don't like it? Could you live with that? You know, do you need to be liked by everybody? Does everybody need to think you're smart? Um, you know, the reality is none of us are liked by everybody, not even Santa Claus. Um, <laughs> there you go. So, yeah. So just getting people to, rather than assuming that these negative thoughts and predictions are facts, I'm encouraging people to start to question those beliefs and thoughts. Um, uh, we also, for certain phobias, we have some very specific strategies that we use. So in, in blood and needle phobias, if people have a history of fainting, we will combine the exposure therapy with, um, uh, muscle tension exercises where we get people to tense all of the muscles in their body. And what that does is increases their blood pressure temporarily and prevents the fainting. Mm. Um, so that's a very specific treatment for blood and needle phobias. Um, there's also some evidence supporting uh, mindfulness meditation and acceptance-based strategies for uh, treatment, especially for social anxiety and agoraphobia, less so for some of the specific phobias. Um, so th th those are some examples of some of the strategies that we, we use. All right, we've got to step aside for a quick recess, but we'll be back right after this. What about when it comes to a fear or a phobia of something that is irrational, kind of like how I get freaked out next to big ships? Obviously, I know something. nothing's going to happen to me. What, what is something that I would do to help get over the fact that it gives me the heebie-jeebies? Yeah, so... Um... Probably for that kind of fear, we would focus more on exposure. So there probably is some sort of prediction that you're making. And then, yeah, of course, there's a part of you that knows that nothing's going to happen. But when you're in this situation, it may feel like something's going to happen, even if you don't know what that prediction is. Um, it may even just be an association that you've made with those situations where you feel like the, the fear will be unmanageable or something like that. A lot of the times the, these predictions are unconscious even. Um, but the nice thing about exposure therapy is you don't really have to know what the fear is. As I mentioned, my, you know, my my dog got over her fear of going for walks, and that's without asking her what her predictions were and <laughs> having her look <laughs> right. at the evidence for her predictions. It was just with pure exposure. So, you know, if, if you were going to overcome that, we would probably encourage you to be in that situation and to stay in that situation long enough to learn that the situation is safe. Uh, and long enough to see your your fear and anxiety actually come down, because that's typically what happens as ah. you start to become accustomed to the situation. And then we'd have you go back there a, a day or two later, and you might notice some of the fears come back, but it's not quite as high, and uh, it comes down more quickly. And we'd have you go back there again a couple of days later, and what you'd find is over a couple of weeks, the fear doesn't really come on anymore, and, and when it does come on, it's very brief and very mild. Um, so that that's essentially what we would do. And if it's too difficult for you to start off super close to those ships, we would start off doing these exposures a little bit farther away and gradually moving closer and closer to them. 
Yeah, you're you're almost taking away the fear of the unknown, the unknown of what could happen if I stay here longer, or am I going to continue to be scared? You're you're taking that away. I, I think exactly. I think possibly I died on the Titanic in a past life. That's that's the only explanation I can think of. I hope not. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, are there? So we talked about some of the common phobias, but what are some of the more unusual phobias you've encountered or heard about? So what I would say to that is that um, the there are lots of unusual phobias, um, but it's not unusual to have an unusual phobia, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So I see I see people all the time who have a fear that I've never seen before. Like that's not unusual. Um, so uh, j- just as an example, I, I uh, saw somebody who was afraid of airplanes flying overhead. So this person was not afraid to be in an airplane, um, but was afraid if the airplane was flying overhead. And they didn't really know why they were afraid of that. They didn't, there was no specific prediction. They weren't afraid the plane was going to fall out of the the sky or anything like that, but they were afraid of it. And they felt more comfortable if they were wearing a hat. Mm-hmm. And again, they didn't know why. Um, so that that's something I've only seen once. Um, in our clinic, we've seen a couple of people with flower phobias. Um, so one of them had a fear of sunflowers and she described a, an experience where she was a young child um, at, at an age where the sunflowers were a lot taller than her. And she was in this big sunflower field from her parents and she got separated from her parents and couldn't find them for a brief time. And from that day on, she was afraid of sunflowers, even as an adult. And again, she didn't know why she knew she wasn't going to get lost in a sunflower field or anything like that, but just seeing a sunflower would trigger a, a panic reaction. Another person was afraid of hollyhocks and she had a, an experience where some people were chasing her. I think her brother maybe was chasing her with hollyhocks and that triggered a fear of that specific flower. So, huh. um, so it's trauma-based so yeah, in a way. For them, it was trauma-based. Uh, for the person with the airplane flying overhead fear, it wasn't trauma-based. She had no specific memory of what caused it. And it could be something she saw in a movie. Like it's hard to know because she, she had no memory. Yeah. Could it potentially be something that she dreamt about and something tragic happened to her in a dream and she doesn't remember having that dream? Could be. Yeah. That's Here possible. I am just trying to think um, of all possible explanations. <laughs> you never know. Yeah. Could be something in a dream, something from a movie, something that uh, when she was three years old, another four, another three-year-old said to her, and and again, she has no memory of the original cause, but the the reaction has kind of stuck with her over time. Right. Do you have any yeah. phobias? Um, nothing that I would say is at that that level of being a phobia. Um, but I'm very self. I don't dance, so I'm very uh... self-conscious. Uh, very self-conscious dancing, and I have been since I was a kid. And I would say when I was like. 13 or 14 and people and there were school dances and I either didn't go or if I did go I didn't dance or or at our high school prom I wouldn't dance with my girlfriend um I would say that there were times where it kind of impacted my life um, when I was younger I'm I'm turning 59 next month and nobody really cares whether I dance now so <laughs> that's not um, true so it's, we yeah. all care <laughs> do you okay well well maybe it is a phobia <laughs> um so, so yeah, that would be one thing. Um, I would say I'm uncomfortable around bees. If I'm, if I'm outside and I see a bee, it's fine. But if I'm, if I can't get a Waisley, like if I'm in a restaurant and there's a bee or, um, there's a bee in the car, 
I'd probably get out of the car if I saw a bee. But again, I I would say that comes up every four years where there's like a bee in a confined space. So again, it I'd say it's a fear, but not a phobia, probably in 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 uh, my case. Okay. And there's other things I'll just say that I used to be afraid of that I just got over through exposure. I was I remember my first professional presentation. I was terrified. My mouth was dry, and I had all those panic symptoms that people get. And I just had to do it so often for my job that I. I grew to, to enjoy presenting over time. And um, I remember the first time I had to, uh, I, when I remember in high school, I stayed home on the day that we had to test our own blood because I was afraid of, you know, pricking my mm -hmm. finger. Um, um, but for my research, I, I was doing research on phobias. And I was treating people with blood and needle phobias and I had to get over that discomfort. So mm -hmm. I forced myself to do that through exposure. And again, it, it got easier. So um yeah. So anyway, those are a few examples of fears that I've had over the years that I've either haven't really been a big problem or I've dealt with them using these these same strategies that people deal with or people use. Well, the first thing I have to say about that is if you have a, a fear of dancing, then it just sounds like you need some exposure therapy. So we can give you a platform. We'll set you up with a camera and we'll broadcast you live dancing to millions of viewers. Sounds good. Just <laughs> let me know where to sign up and I'll, Perfect. I'll, I'll be there. I love the 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 attitude. The the question though that I thought about when when you were talking just now, is it common for people as they get older to develop a phobia or a fear or does it typically stem from when they were younger and it's something they've had for a long time and finally it's time to try to get over it? Do we just see it randomly happen to you as an adult? Yeah, the age of onset really depends on the fear. So on average, um People with animal phobias tend to ha have the fear develop much earlier, often in early childhood. And sometimes they've had the fear for as long as they can remember. Um, that doesn't mean it can't begin later, but on average, it begins early. Um, something like claustrophobia or driving phobia, those often begin later. So the average age of onset would be in the 20s or, or, or even 30s. But um, again, uh, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be unusual for those to begin uh later in life either, but the average would be in kind of 20s and 30s. So the age of onset does differ a little bit. Uh, and phobias also differ by gender. Really? So yeah, so things like animal phobias are much more common in women than men. Um, but some other fears like blood and needle phobias are about about equally common in women and men. Um, so, so there are some differences uh, demographic kinds of differences like that. That is so funny that you bring that up because I was, I played a sport in college and anytime you'd have to go, you know, we would go and donate blood or we would get a blood test or something like that. You would have all these like huge football guys and they would be so afraid to give their blood because they were afraid of the needle. I'm like, you're knocking each other around and get, <laughs> risking concussions, but you're afraid of a little needle. It's, it, it's fascinating to me how some people react to different things. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Wow. So just last question I have for you, Dr. Anthony, is what what do you think if people are listening to this and like, well, I might have a phobia or, you know, I don't know if I have a phobia. What's the biggest thing someone should know about phobias? Well, um, I guess, again, the question is, if if your fear is causing problems for you, that's really the the, the thing to to ask yourself. If it's not causing problems, you know, the treatment, the treatment doesn't take long. You know, people can often overcome a uh uh, a fear of spiders and a few hours of exposure. And often people need a therapist to do that. It's hard for them to kind of do that on their own. It's kind of like a personal trainer getting people 
you know, working with people uh, for exercise, it, the person's there to kind of make sure it's moving along and help control the animal and those sorts of things. Um, uh, but but if you if you if the fear doesn't bother you, it's not important to um, uh, it's not necessarily important to overcome it. But if it is, then I, I guess I would say these are probably among the most treatable problems that are out there. So I would encourage people to to seek help. And you can find a couple of places where you can find therapists. Um, one is through the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, um, adaa.org. Uh, another is the Association for Behavioral and Cognitive Therapies, abct.org. Both of those have find a therapist uh, sections on their website where you can plug in your zip code and the uh, type of problem that you're looking for help for. And there, there are similar associations internationally as well. Those are two in the US though. Uh, and there's lots of lots of books. There's also lots of books available. I have three available on my website as free downloads, one on animal phobias, one on blood and needle phobias or medical phobias, and, and one on height phobias that um, are available as PDF, free PDF downloads. And my, my website is martinantony.com and there's no H in Antony. <laughs> That's right. Well, those are excellent resources, Dr. Antony. I really appreciate you sharing those with, with everyone who's listening here. And I also appreciate your time. Thank you so much for coming on this podcast. I've learned a lot and hopefully uh, the people listening to this have as well. So we appreciate it. Thank you very much. It was a, it was a pleasure being here. All right, if you missed anything from class, these are my office hours, and here are some top takeaways about phobias. Number one, a phobia is based on a fear. Fear is something we perceive as an immediate threat, which activates our fight or flight response. A phobia, though, is when that fear is excessive and out of proportion and may affect your everyday life. Number two, there are a lot of different causes of a phobia. Some examples include trauma, genetics, your observations, and even the information you consume. And number three, if you believe you may have a phobia, fear not, there are a variety of ways to address your discomfort, including exposure therapy or even challenging and questioning the fears you hold in order to rationalize them. Thank you for listening to this episode on phobias. For more podcasts, you can go to foxnewspodcast.com. And don't forget to subscribe to this one on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen and leave us a review. This has been Getting Schooled with Abby Hornacek on the Fox News Podcast Network. Class dismissed. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.